shit, said Andy Diel as the phone rang. In twenty minutes, the CID's monthly case review meeting was due to start, the first since his return. In the old days, this wasn't a problem. He'd have rolled in late and watched them bolt their bacon butties and sit up straight. But if he was late now, they'd probably think he'd forgotten the way to the station. So time was short, and Monday morning traffic was always a pain. Not that using his siren and jumping a few red lights couldn't compensate for. But if he wasn't on his way in the next couple of minutes, he might have to run over a few pedestrians, too. He grabbed his car keys and headed for the front door. Behind him, the answer machine clicked in, and a voice he didn't recognize faded behind him down the narrow hallway. Andy, hi. Mick Purdy, remember me? We met at Bram's Hill a few years back. Happy days, eh? So how you doing, mate? Still shagging the sheep up there in the frozen north? Listen, if you could give me a bell, I'd really appreciate it. My numbers... As the fat man slid into his car, he dug into his memory bank. These days, especially with recent stuff, it sometimes seemed that the harder he looked, the darker it got. Curiously, deeper often meant clearer, and his Mick Purdy memories were pretty deep. It wasn't a few years since he'd been on that Bramshill course, more like eight or nine. Even then, he'd been the oldest officer there by a long way, the reason being that for a decade or more he'd managed to find a way of wriggling out of attendance whenever his name came up. But finally, his concentration had lapsed. It hadn't been so bad. The official side had been slightly less tedious than anticipated, and there'd been a bunch of convivial colleagues grateful to find someone they could rely on to get them to bed when their own legs proved less hollow than they'd imagined. D.I. McPurdy had usually been one of the last men standing, and he and D.L. had struck up a holiday friendship based on shared professional scepticism and divided regional loyalties. They exchanged harmonious anecdotes, offering particular instances of the universal truth that most of those in charge of H.M. Constabulary couldn't organize a fuck-up in a brothel. Then, when Concord got boring, they divided geographically— with Purdy claiming to believe that up in Yorkshire, in times of dearth, they ate their young, and D.L. countering that down in London they'd produced a younger generation that not even a starving vulture could stomach. They'd parted with the usual expressions of goodwill and hope that their paths would cross again. But they never had. And now here was Mick Purdy ringing him at home, first thing on a Monday morning, wanting to renew acquaintance— Meaning, unless he were finally giving way to a long-repressed passion, the bugger wanted a favour. Interesting. But not so interesting it couldn't wait. Important thing this morning was to be there when his motley crew drifted into the meeting, seated in his chair of state, clearly the monarch of all he surveyed, ready to call them to account for what they'd done with their meagre talents during his absence. He turned the key in the ignition and heard the familiar ursine growl. The old rover had much in common with its driver, he thought complacently. Bodywork crap, interior packed with more rubbish than a builder's skip, but, courtesy of the lads in the police garage, the engine would have graced a vehicle ten times younger and five times more expensive. He put it into gear and blasted away from the curb. 0812 to 0820 The speed of D.L.'s departure took Gina Wolfe by surprise. She'd been watching the house for signs of life, spotting none till suddenly the front door burst open and a rotund figure emerged. Don't be put off by his size, she'd been warned. 
King Henry was fat too, and, like the Merry Monarch, Andy Dial used his weight to roll over everybody who got in his way. But she wouldn't have expected anything so fat to move so fast. He slid into his car like a tarantula going down a drain hole. The old banger started first time and took off at a speed as surprising as its owner's. Not that she doubted the ability of her Nissan 350Z to match it, but on unfamiliar streets she needed to keep him in sight. By the time she belted up, eased out of her parking spot and set off in pursuit, the rover had reached a T-junction three hundred yards ahead and turned left. Happily, it was still visible when she too turned. A short burst of acceleration closed the distance between them, and she settled down three car lengths behind. Her wanderings that morning had given her some sense of the city's geography, and she knew they were heading towards its centre, probably making...